Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the spiritual significance of parapsychological phenomena. With me is Professor Charles Tart, who was one of my professors when I was a student at the University of California. Dr. Tart is the author of many books, including classics such as Altered States of Consciousness, States of Consciousness, The End of Materialism, Mind Science, On Being Stoned, Open Mind, Discriminating Mind, Waking Up, Living the Mindful Life, Psi, Scientific Studies of the Psychic Realm, Transpersonal Psychologies, Learning to Use Extrasensory Perception, and the secret science of the soul. So you can see he's well qualified to discuss the spiritual implications of parapsychology. The interview is on Skype. So now I'm going to switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be with you once again to explore the spiritual implications of parapsychological phenomena. And I think an interesting place to start, actually, is with J.B. Rhine back in uh, the 1960s. When he left Duke University, he set up an organization that he called the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man. And I think his intention at that point was to use parapsychology data to uh, establish that human beings have a spiritual nature. I think that was the case, yeah. And that scared a lot of other people who figure we have a hard enough time being scientifically accepted. And if we have the slightest hint of spirituality or religion, they'll say we're a bunch of fanatics, mm -hmm. not real scientists. Which, there's a certain truth in that, but it, it goes to an extreme where we ignore the spiritual implications of this work. I know there are parapsychologists today who get very uncomfortable when spirituality is brought up. Some of them may be watching right now in the future and getting very uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, I think it's good to make people uncomfortable from time to time. I actually have a, a self-definition that will make it a little easier for them. Mm -hmm. I normally don't define myself as a parapsychologist. I define myself or describe myself as a transpersonal psychologist. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in the spiritual, what it means, what makes it happen, things like that. And from that broader perspective, parapsychology is a technical subspecialty within that about the reality or lack of it of certain aspects of spirituality. Mm-hmm. 
Although I, I do think it's possible for somebody to be a complete materialist uh, and, and to explore parapsychological phenomenon in, in the hope that maybe someday uh, there will be a, uh, an explanation for the data that we now have that, that could be contained within the existing metaphysical parameters. And I support those people all the way, as long as they don't say, don't look at any other way. We have the only way that's going to work. Yeah. But it, it hasn't worked yet or shown any definite signs of working. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit cruel to my physicist, materialist kind of friends on this parapsychological stuff. When they say it's, there's going to be a physical setting, I say, right, so then you'll not only understand ESP and the like better, you'll be able to control it. Because to me, that was the test of a good scientific theory. You can affect things more effectively as well as talk about it good. There is not a parapsychology experiment I know of yet that works better because if we plug Schrodinger's constant into Einstein's energy mass equation, it works better, except for the psychological aspect that if you're a physicist, you have enormous psychological charisma. And so some of our best experimenters are physicists, but I think it's that psychological oomph that they have. She'll excuse my technical term. <laughs> well, I, I know that uh, Ed May uh, at SAIC, a, a physicist, did a lot of research on what he called the gradient of entropy as it pertains to remote viewing targets, which was a physical mm -hmm. measure. And he determined to his satisfaction that the higher the gradient of entropy, the better uh, the target was. Uh, people were able to... Uh, what would we say, zoom in on it uh, using remote viewing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that, and I'm glad Ed has done that research. But insofar as I understand what he's measuring, mm -hmm. I think it translates almost completely into how interesting a target is. A target that's got lots of interesting things in it has more entropy in the sense of physical changes in qualities. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's been separated out from basic physical characteristics. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure either, but I did have the impression that sometimes what he measures as gradient of entropy is hardly even visible to the human eye. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I don't understand it that well to be able to, yeah. to comment on that, but I, I do want to follow up on this business of physicists having a lot of charisma, as it were, mm -hmm. to make ESP happen better. Okay. I've known Russ Targ since uh, the mid-1960s when I did my postdoc work out at Stanford. And so I've kind of kept up with his interests. And when he started talking about the remote viewing work, I was very impressed because it looked like they were getting a lot more ESP coming from their percipients than we get in the usual kind of card guessing, multiple choice guessing kinds of things. Mm. And I... Once in a while, I would ask him or help put off, um, how do you do it? What's the, what's the psychological procedure whereby you create this very rich setting? And they would both look at me like, psychological procedure? What's that? We're physicists. We do an experiment. Yeah. Right then and there was a degree of confidence 
from the highest prestige brands of science that immediately said, okay, here's one component. It helps to be a much higher prestige scientist than, say, a, a psychologist or a sociologist and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And students even know, you know, kind of the status levels here. Mm -hmm. When I first visited their lab at SRI, it was really brought home to me what a wonderful psychological setting they have. Yeah. First thing, SRI is a major think tank. You don't just wander in there. You've got to have an invitation. You get met at a desk where there's a security guard standing nearby, and somebody who's on the inside has to come down and vouch for you and get a name tag, and you have to be accompanied even to wander around the hall. So I think it was Hal came down and got me and said, let's go up to our lab, and we walked oh, I don't know, several hundred yards to get to their laboratories. And they didn't just walk, he didn't just walk through the halls, he shortcutted through some other people's labs. Oh, the equipment in those labs, the blinking lights, the, os the oscilloscopes. I knew I was in a temple of big science. Mm. And then he and Russ sit down and show me some of their successful remote viewings, the drawings and the descriptions, and they're just so good. And wow, this this is a lot better than the uh, the college sophomore subject in an ESP experiment who's asked to guess cards by someone who's just a professor. So they have a they had a fantastic psychological setup there, which they were completely oblivious to, which probably made it even more effective. You know, they weren't faking anything; they were just physicists doing an experiment. Well, well there's this better. There's a sense in which I, I would say scientists and particularly physicists are the high priests of our society. Yes. yes. So they have almost a, a religious aura around. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd call it spiritual, though. No, but the, these are the priests who tell you what reality is. Mm-hmm. And they know reality so well they can drop a nuclear weapon on you if you don't agree with them. That's <laughs> impressive, you know. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's physicists are incredibly brilliant, but of course they're not looking at the spiritual side. And but they've got the prestige. Mm -hmm. Well, I of course know Russell very well and have known him for decades. I consider him a close mm -hmm. friend, and I I know that. Early on in his career, probably even before he entered college, because he was a, an amateur magician as a child, he mm -hmm. he had explored ESP, and he was absolutely convinced he has this mind like a steel trap. And once he makes up his mm -hmm. mind that ESP is real, it was like total focus on his yeah. part. So when Russell talks to you about it, he does it with this calm certainty of somebody who knows rather than somebody who maybe or some sure. data suggests. He's, he's, he's got yeah. it, and he's a physicist. It's real. Well, you know, <laughs> it reminds me actually of a funny old comedy routine by an old old comedian called Lord Buckley. And he's talking about Jesus and how people believed Jesus. And he said, uh, using kind of hipster lingo, he said, when he lays it down, it stays there. <laughs> and I think Russell is that kind of a person. Yeah. And of course... One of the major issues in parapsychology, which I've been trying to make my colleagues look at for 50 years, is the psychology of the experimenter. Mm -hmm. Some experimenters never get ESP out of their experiments. 
Others get it routinely. Why aren't we measuring the characteristics of the experiment? We've got a little lore about it, certainty, uh, facility, and being friendly with people and whatnot, but no systematic look at it. And I think it's this desire to be accepted by mainstream science, so we have to show how objective we are. Mm -hmm. We have no characteristics. We are logical entities observing and theorizing. End of story. (laughs) <laughs> That's not how it works with people. No, because in, in effect, one of, one of the main implications of parapsychology, and I think actually of quantum physics as well, is, is that this distinction that we make between subjective and objective is something of an illusion. It's tricky, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I can't explain it any further than that, but... Uh, <laughs> This stuff does indeed remind me our ideas of reality are handy for every day going to the grocery store, but there's a lot they don't cover. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing, I know there are enormous spiritual implications uh, from the data, and you've written about that extensively in a couple of your books. Uh, but w- one thing that um, I guess it puzzles me from time to time, it seems as if there isn't particularly a correlation between being a very spiritual person and being very psychic. They seem to be orthogonal parameters really <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it seems it seems to me you can be very psychic and not be very spiritual i think yeah yeah and, and you can be very spiritual and not be particularly psychic and we've known people like that okay but i would argue we've got sort of a small sample here Mm -hmm. we're talking about extreme people at one end or the other of that and it's complicated by the fact for instance that in a lot of spiritual systems there's an injunction that you're going to become more psychic as you become more enlightened but don't mess with it it'll swell your ego and get you off on power trips leave it alone if you have to do anything with it sneak it in don't let anybody know um, that makes it very hard to tell. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to tell how spiritual people are anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, there are lots of conventional criteria, yeah. but I'm not at all sure how well they work. And they're also easily faked. So, you know, mm-hmm. some of the people who've made a good living as spiritual teachers, their ethics and genuineness is very questionable. I'm thinking when I say people who are very spiritual, it really has a lot to do with the language they use, the food they eat, the clothing they wear, and those things are superficial, really. Oh, yes. I uh, I sat on my Zafu meditation cushion and ate only vegetarian for 10 days as preparation for this interview. <laughs> and it shows. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I'm all for eating healthy, but... As a psychologist, my main concern is the junk food of the mind that people eat and what it does to their thoughts, which I suspect has a lot bigger input than what goes on, what actually goes into their physical body. Mm-hmm. But let's let's make a distinction here now between religion and spirituality, because okay. I think it's important for where we're liable to go on this. Mm-hmm. When I say spiritual, I generally mean Someone has had some kind of very powerful personal experience where they feel connected to all life, to the universe, to God, to uh, other beings, something like that. And they know the importance of connection and love and things like that. And it 
really changes the way they live their life, right? They're now spiritual people, not so much because they're supposed to be, but because given the way they've experienced the world and hopefully continue to get glimpses of, that's the only sensible way to be. You know, so for instance, religion can tell you, you better be good to other people or you're going to go to hell. Uh, an enlightenment experience might give someone a taste of, I'm not all by myself. I'm connected to everybody. So if somebody else is suffering, I'm suffering at some level. Uh, so I'm going to be considerate, nice to that person, because it's the only sensible thing to do. So spirituality is a more of an individual sort of thing. But then, of course, after somebody comes along with a spiritual experience, they get followers who then organize committees, who have scholars who get the doctrines out of it and integrate it with the lords and ladies and the king and how they run things. So when you talk religion, you're talking much more about social psychological kinds of things, which is all right. I, I've tended to put it down being a loner myself, but I realize we need something like religion to help foster social harmony. But it's not the same thing as direct spiritual experience. Do you equate spirituality with uh, mysticism? Equate's a, long, a strong word, Jeff. So I'd, I'd not quite want to say equate, but let's say they're highly correlated. Mm -hmm. You know, when I talk about somebody having a spiritual experience, most of them could be just as well described as a spirit, as a mystical experience. You know, which means it's overwhelming, it usually changes the person's identity, they, they feel who they are is different, it feels connected to the rest of life, and it's extremely difficult to describe in words to anybody else. Part of the connotation of a mystic experience is, well, it was like, no, it wasn't like that, well, no, it was like, well... <laughs> <laughs> It re it reminds me of a joke Bob Monroe of Out of the Body fame once told me, an old classical joke of a man who's driving in the country trying to find a place and he gets totally lost. And he finally sees a local and pulls over and asks him how to get there. And the local says, oh, yeah, you take th three crossroads down here and see a red barn and you turn left. Oh, no, wait, that won't get you there. Actually, you should go back and... And it goes on and finally says, no, I'm sorry, you can't get there from here. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've just seen what amounts to a paranormal phenomenon. I have such terrible memory for jokes that I usually never remember them. Well, you got that one. <laughs> that, was, that was funny. But let me ask you this question. Would you regard uh, spirituality, mysticism to be independent of belief systems? Or are they, is there a correlation there? Yes and no. Uh, your belief system is going to have a major effect on whether you're likely to have a mystical experience to begin with. You know, so for instance, some religions don't encourage mystical experiences. You know, the, the the founder of the religion and the saints had them long ago, and now you just follow the doctrine, and any experience will mislead you. Versus something like more of what we think about Buddhism, where we'll teach you how to meditate, and you can have the same kind of experiences the Buddha had, or at least something on the way. So. It's possible for a belief system to either block you from having that kind of experience or to help you get there. And then once you have it, if you try to share it with anybody, mm -hmm. 
their belief system and your belief system start to interact, you know. I mean, we're both from California. We can use words like vibrations and auras, and you know. Uh, <laughs> and we think we understand each other, but there's often a question as to how well. So, now they're not necessarily correlated. Mm-hmm. Le- Let me give you an example of that. Uh, I'm thinking... People often ask me, how did I get interested in parapsychology? Well, I was raised as a Lutheran as a child back in New Jersey, and my parents weren't religious. My mother knew what was right and wrong. My father wasn't interested, but my grandmother was deeply religious, and she went to church every Sunday. And when I got old enough, she started taking me to Sunday school and then on to church. And, you know, grandmothers are the source of unconditional love. So if it was good enough for her, it was good enough for me. Mm-hmm. So I got pretty involved in being a Lutheran until sort of further on to my teenage years, several things happened. One is I became a teenager. And like a teenager, I became very good at spotting the hypocrisy of adults. These people talked a good game about their religion, but I wasn't at all sure they actually lived that way. But even more, I was in love with science and read extensively. I'd go to the main city library and bring home several books on science each week and whatnot. And I found out very rapidly that science seemed to be saying religion is nonsense. Not only is religion is nonsense, all religion is nonsense. The very idea is preposterous. It's filled with crazy stuff. And it became clear to me pretty soon there was a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some strange ideas in religion that seemed to go against the facts, and uh, it didn't necessarily make people good. So I experienced a lot of conflict between that because, on the one hand, coming out of childhood, I was very devout. I prayed regularly, I wanted to be good. But then my scientific side was developing, and was I just laying some kind of weird trip on myself? I discovered, I don't know quite how, call it by accident, maybe accident with a capital A, some books on parapsychology. And I thought, "Uh aha, you can use the method of science to actually check some of the ideas you come up with in religion and spirituality. Take the idea of prayer, for instance. From the viewpoint of Common sense or ordinary materialistic science, prayer is talking to yourself. And if you talk out loud, your prayer will travel 10 or 20 feet before it gets lost in the noise of the environment around it. And that's the end of it. If you're praying internally, it doesn't even go that far. So it's talking to yourself. Maybe it's good to talk to yourself. It helps you work some things out. It can certainly work that way. Maybe it just multiplies your craziness. But then here are these experiments in telepathy that J.B. Ryan and his colleagues had done, that many people had done, and you've got somebody at one place trying to send an image or something like that, and somebody totally shielded materially from it in another place is making a record of what comes through, and they get it right enough of the time that it's not chance. Well, wait a minute. 
prayer then is really about telepathy. It's about being able to send some information or a desire or something like that beyond your, your actual physical location and being. That's interesting. What else could you begin to check about ideas in religion? And then, of course, I discovered that historically the Society for Psychical Research, founded in 1882, I believe, mm. was very interested in this particular question. Science was revolutionizing society, seeming to throw out all religion. A lot of people said, yes, science has got a lot going for it and it's obviously true, but are we going to throw it all out? What's the basis for morality or decency? And they were very interested in this. Can you apply the relative objectivity of science to religious mystical phenomena to find out what's true? That inspired me. And basically, that's what my life has been about professionally. Can I use basic scientific method to find out more about phenomena that have these kind of spiritual and religious implications? And it's been interesting. And so that, in many ways, that's the project of transpersonal psychology and, by extension, parapsychology. Well, almost, but not quite. Uh, that's how I would define transpersonal psychology, looking into the reality of these mystical and spiritual phenomena. But most transpersonal psychologists that I've known simply take that reality for granted, and they know these kind of experiences are generally good for people, so it's a question of how do you teach people to have these experiences. Um, that doesn't have too much impact on mainstream science, because they say transpersonal psychology, it's a lot of nuts in California, you know, who believe anything, and it's all right, they're relatively harmless. And whatnot. I've often suggested that in transpersonal psychology, we need to check the basic reality of some of these phenomena, because uh, I suppose there are times when training you to have a, a powerful illusion that's good for you is a good idea, but by and large, I'd like our spiritual ideas to be based on as much reality as we can check out. Mm -hmm. Not that we may be able to check out everything, but we can check out some things. Well, you know, recently I've interviewed a fellow named Jorge Ferrer, who's a transpersonal psychologist. He considers himself a, uh, a member of what he calls the second wave of transpersonal psychology. And oh, that makes me feel old. <laughs> he, de <laughs> he, he defines the first wave of, of thinkers, people like yourself and Stan Groff, as, as, as sort of having laid out a, a vision that is consistent with um, what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. Uh, but he says there's a real problem with that because if, if you take that point of view, you're basically identifying with the idea that all is one, which is the philosophy of Advaita Vedanta. There is no division, no duality. But he says there are many spiritual traditions that are don't subscribe to that view. And is it, it's not proper for a transpersonal psychologist without evidence to elevate any one tradition over any other. I'd go along with that. Mm -hmm. um, transpersonal psychology is a very new field of psychology. You know, we've mm -hmm. been around for 30, 40 years, maybe at the most. Sometimes the idea that all is one, that we're intimately connected, does reflect the kinds of experiences some people have and has positive effects on people. 
But I won't say that any one particular view is necessarily the correct view. Mm -hmm. uh, I find truth in just about everybody's view about almost everything. And I also find that almost everybody who's got a view that picks up some of this truth is liable to say, actually, it's I've got all the truth. Uh -huh. oh, oh, slow down. Humility, remember? Supposed to be good to be humility? Um, <laughs> where there's so much we don't know yeah. yet. Okay? Well, and if we're all one, how come we feel separate? That's an interesting question. And yeah. it, It's a very interesting question. <laughs> I've heard some interesting answers to it. Um, how, how would you do address that? I have no idea. Oh. But that's that's an interesting question. Okay, here's one way I'd think about it. If you told me, okay, I've got this new mystical technique. If you practice it for a couple of days, you'll have the experience of feeling at one with everything and the universe is perfect and everything is going as it should. And you'll never have to do any practice or anything again. It'll last all the rest of your life. And part of me would say, yeah, yeah, oh boy, no more suffering, no more worry. And another part of me would say, might this get a little boring after a while? Uh, I like to solve problems. Maybe one of the reasons for human life being what it's like is that it helps us evolve. You know, you don't train somebody to be stronger, for instance, without having them lift heavier and heavier weights. So one mystical vision I've seen people talk about is that this is a training school, that souls incarnate here, and it's a very tough course, but if you can master this, you're really very useful in the rest of the cosmos, much more than the people who stay in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. I'm remembering an experience Bob Monroe described in one of his out-of-the-body trips after he'd been having them for many years. Early on, he'd gone, he'd had a mystical experience of the classical kind. He, I, I can't remember it exactly, but he found himself in some place with colored clouds moving and evolving with incredible beauty and this music like you wouldn't believe was playing and it was so calm and ecstatic at the same time and the experience ended and for years he kept thinking oh i wish i could go back to that place well many years later he did go back and after a while he noticed um didn't this cloud sequence go that way before oh, it's looping it's a repetition and he had an insight that he'd found his way into some kind of spiritual nursery which was very good for calming disturbed souls or baby souls or something like that. But you didn't want to stay there forever and ever and ever. So I'd say I'll, I'd like to be able to vacation at the resort you described. But <laughs> I like to feel I'm doing something useful, not just feeling blissfully happy all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to parapsychological data... But wait, or, I, I want to I add to that. I realize uh -huh. that... For people who are suffering a lot in life, that sounds like a really snotty sort of thing I'm saying. Because uh -huh. I realize there are a lot of people who are suffering really terribly. I'm lucky that I don't have that much suffering. 
So, you know, if I can contribute to understanding our minds better so people can become happier and more competent and all that, that's really important to have some actual accomplishment there, not just feeling good myself. Well, and, uh, and, Go ahead. and I think the main claim of Buddhism, for example, is, is that this is a path uh, that leads you to uh, end suffering. Mm-hmm. Which is quite a claim. Yeah. I've been a student of Buddhism for, oh God, 30, 40 years now, something like that. Should I say, oh God, when I'm talking about <laughs> Buddhism? Anyway, and sometimes I hear it expressed as you reach a state of enlightenment in which you're totally forever beyond any suffering or maybe you no longer exist in a form that suffers, or you know, it, it gets very hard to describe in other words. And I'm a little suspicious of that. Um, I suspect, uh, I know Buddhism can give you tools for not suffering as much, and for being more effective in what you do. But I think you then use those tools. You then help other people, you then help our understanding and so forth. So, I'm... I don't. I, I'm not a Buddhist. Okay, mm -hmm. I never call myself a Buddhist. A student of Buddhism, all right. A student of various other spiritual traditions, but I don't know enough or believe simply enough to really fit into any of those slots. Well, my sense of, of the people I know in the field of parapsychology is that they're mostly like you. They, they're eager to study various religious traditions and spiritual paths, but they're not particularly joiners. If, if they join anything, it's, it's their commitment to the scientific method. That reminds me of what you mentioned uh, about first wave and second wave transpersonal mm -hmm. psychologists. That might be partly an artifact of that. If you got into transpersonal psychology 30, 40 years ago, you were a misfit or a rebel. Mm -hmm. You were really bucking the common trend then. And so you'd emphasize doing it on your own. Uh, maybe that's not the case as much anymore. Where, where have I read somewhere now that in some cities there are more yoga studios in the city than coffee shops? I find that hard to believe, but wow. Yeah, I um, notice um, I've been in Las Vegas and in Albuquerque, not necessarily either city known as a great spiritual center, but there are <laughs> yoga studios all over the place. Well, I have a cartoon on my refrigerator that shows the in, the road into Las Vegas and a big billboard there that says, Las Vegas, a faith-based community. <laughs> One of the main interests since uh, the field of psychical research was formed in 1882 was to answer the question of whether human beings survive the death of the physical body. There's some component of consciousness not dependent on the physical body. That seems to me to be very much related to the issue of spiritual implications of our field. Oh yes, very much so. Now, for a long time, people had an awful lot of misery in their lives that you couldn't do anything about. You know, I'm thinking, for instance, a culture which I imagine ancient India to have been, there wasn't much social change as you went along. You know, on a, on a minor scale, somebody might, no, they didn't even change caste very much. So the idea of reincarnation there and the possibility that you might in the next life have a better situation, life could be appealing. 
Or it might be a horrible idea of, I got to carry out the garbage in this life and the next life and the next life and the next life. Uh, when we think about reincarnation in the West, I think we tend to see it as a, an opportunity for progress. But it, the idea of some kind of survival does add a dimension of meaning to life. Mm. Now, back in 2009, when I published my book, The End of Materialism, now in, in paperback with a strange title of the, what was it, Secrets of the Soul or something? The, the Secret Science of the Soul. The soul. Yeah, I'm sure they're going to come and take my white lab coat away for daring to use the word soul. But anyway, <laughs> the idea that there was meaning in life, it didn't just end, you know. You're born, you eat, you suffer, you die, end of story. But that you go on and somehow help to reduce the suffering. Mm. Now, that is a very tricky idea because, of course, it also helps the ruling class keep us peasants down from revolting. Mm-hmm. So... Pie in the sky. So, when science began showing that a lot of religions seem to be full of nonsensical ideas, of course, the idea of survival went out too. You know, yep. That your mind is a function of of your physical brain, all the chemicals exchanging and the little electrical junctions and so forth, and that's all there is to it. So obviously, when you die and that stops happening, no more you. Now, if you've lived a very miserable life, that's actually very appealing. Mm -hmm. So that means no more suffering. Um, I also have an interesting twist on it. I think the evidence is good enough that we may survive in some form. I'm not sure, okay? In, In the book, I talked about the five things that I thought we had enough evidence to be sure of, things like telepathy. And also a bunch of things I called the many maybes where there was enough evidence to think these may be real but uh, we're not quite sure yet and some kind of survival after death was one of those many maybes I think the evidence is quite exciting at some times and at other times you see wish fulfillment and projection and longing to to avoid the reality of death affecting the way people see things so I don't know now, of course, if we survive death, at some point I'm going to find out I was right in thinking it's possible. If we don't survive death, I'm never going to be embarrassed for thinking that because I won't be embarrassed about anything or feel anything or think anything. I'll be gone. You know, I, I can't buy these old ideas that some really cruel God is going to punish me for all eternity because I didn't sing enough hymns. That's just too, too primitive. Mm-hmm. So, to me, then, it makes it very important to try to get evidence about do we survive. Now, one of the things that's really surprised me about that is how few people seem to be interested in the evidence. My naive thought, for instance, was, of course, any organized religious group would love to hear about this evidence, since they all assume some kind of survival. But the degree to which religious groups have said, come and talk to us, it's almost zero. Mm -hmm. And I think it may be that the question is so vital to them, and they've already invested so much in believing they're going to go to heaven or something like that, or unfortunately go to hell, that they don't want any questions asked. It's all right if science says people who go to church live three years longer on the average or something like that. But that was even tricky because it involved asking some questions. So I think a lot of 
religious belief doesn't want you to ask questions. And I can understand where that coming from is coming from. And I suspect there are areas of my life that I don't want anybody to ask any questions. And I may have covered them up so well that I don't know what they are, so I think I'm very open-minded, but who knows. But science has progressed in the material world so much because it keeps asking questions. Yes, it's obvious that a heavier object would fall faster than a light object, except when you really start checking it out. No, they fall at the same rate. Okay, we we got a new invisible force called gravity and whatnot. Science progresses by asking questions. I I try to ask the questions, and I try to, and I hope they'll come up with answers that I think are conducive to human welfare. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, I don't know. Well, do you think in theory that it's possible to answer that question of survival? I think in theory it's actually to get a surer answer than we have now. Mm-hmm. But I'm not at all sure whether we can get any absolute answers. You know, we can we can talk about the odds, you know. We might say, given what we know now, the odds are 50-50 whether we might survive. But if we did that kind of research we might, and it came out in a certain way, the odds might now be 70-30 or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Well, I think we have to live a lot of our life on based on playing the odds. We don't have any certainty of one sort or another as to how it goes. Uh, I, to a certain extent, I live as if I may survive death and the way I am is going to have long-term consequences. And But that's that sounds too noble somehow. But actually, you know, I'm just an old Boy Scout and I'm trustworthy, courteous, and kind anyway. So... But if if there is something like karma, if the qualities we develop in this life go into an afterlife or into a reincarnation, that's worth knowing about. Mm-hmm. Well, and and of course, you, you know that at the University of Virginia, they now have a database uh, that is well over a thousand uh, cases of uh, young yes. children remembering ostensible past lives where they've actually been able to research and, and locate the family that, that, where these past lives uh, supposedly were lived. That's very impressive. Mm-hmm. One of the things that got me very educated about parapsychological research happened while I was a student also. I was a student at MIT. I thought I was going to be an electrical engineer, and I was browsing in the bookstore one day among the books on sale table, where books that didn't sell where you could buy them for a dollar, and that fit within my budget. And I saw a book called The Search for Bridie Murphy, Mm -hmm. which I immediately started skimming over, thinking it must be some novel. And then I saw something about hypnosis. Well, I'm interested in hypnosis. And as you know, and some listeners probably know, it was about a man named Maury Bernstein who hypnotized a housewife in Colorado. And when he took her back in time, she started speaking with an Irish accent and claiming that she lived a life as Bridie Murphy in Cork and whatnot and came up with a number of interesting facts about Cork at that time, as well as a number of things that couldn't be checked one way or the other. There simply weren't any records and some things that were probably wrong. But, hey, if I asked you what you had for breakfast one year ago on this very date, you'd probably get it wrong, too. Mm-hmm. The rea- I, th- 
I knew a lot about hypnosis by that time and a lot about parapsychology because I am a reading addict. And I thought it wasn't bad, the book. You know, the author didn't make excessive claims. He said, this is the evidence that I got. You know, it would certainly be interesting if we reincarnate and you could pick up memories through hypnosis. And then the book hit the bestseller list yeah. somehow. It hadn't really belonged on the throwaway book table. <laughs> and people went nuts. Mm-hmm. Okay, it even included a book being published shortly after that called A Scientific Report on the Search for Bridey Murphy that had chapters by a number of physicians and psychiatrists who I knew were authorities on the field of hypnosis, and they knocked that book so bad because Bernstein made this awful claim and that nonsensical claim. And I got very puzzled because these were people who, there was, these were real scientists that were highly respected but I didn't remember Bernstein in the Search for Bridie Murphy book making those claims. I went back and reread the book. They were denouncing him for things he never said. I said, oh, wow. Even if you're a scientist, some topics like reincarnation can get you so upset that you start ranting and raving and making a fool of yourself. Wow. And I've noticed that kind of bias in science also. You know, there's... Mm-hmm. Materialism is not just scientific fact. It's a belief system. It's a belief system that's very comforting in a lot of ways. So, for instance, when I was young and got sick sometimes and I was still conventionally religious, I often wondered, have I been bad? Is God punishing me for sin? And now we know so much about medicine. I say, oh, I've got the flu. You know, I'm not bad. What a relief to put it down to a simple physical cause like that. So you can get invested in a total materialism and actively push the spiritual away because it raises questions about how you're living your life. Mm -hmm. All these are factors that interfere with us trying to get clearer scientific knowledge about the spiritual, but we have to work them out. You know, I had the opposite reaction to those scientists. I I first encountered the search for Bridie Murphy in third grade. Third grade? 1956. You were precocious. Well, my classmate, Lee Rosenthal, gave a book report on the search for Bridie Murphy. (laughs) And, And he said, I'm reading this book and it shows that we have lived before. And at that moment, I remember it vividly, sitting in my little desk, I experienced chills running up and down my spine. I mean, tingling really strong, like what we might describe today as a kundalini experience. Really? Yeah. And and was the feeling you were angry or that you were relieved that this was the case? It was like an acknowledgement that there's something true here, something I'd never heard before. And, yeah. and my whole body just resonated. It was quite physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was quite a lesson in the fact that our culture was not ready for the idea of reincarnation. Really, the, the vitriol, you know, and I've seen it in my own career, too. You know, I'm still getting criticized sometimes for studies I wrote up 50 years ago and tart claim this awful thing. Uh-huh. No, I said the opposite. Uh, <laughs> why don't you read what I actually said if you uh-huh. want to criticize me? Well, so there, it's very risky for somebody in a uh, scientific capacity to make a claim of a spiritual nature. You're likely to get pounced on. 
Yep, you and I know that. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and yet it does seem to me that uh, all of the data of parapsychology uh, have spiritual implications. You talked about telepathy earlier, but uh, really what we're talking about with telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, retrocognition is the ability of the human mind, now well-documented in hundreds of experiments, to somehow reach out beyond the range of the nervous system itself or anything we can say about the that we know today about the physical body and obtain information from distant mm-hmm. locations both in space and time it, it suggests minimally speaking that space and time are not obstacles to the human yes. mind yes you know under ordinary circumstances i think i'm here right and i have a boundary my skin and I only have indirect contact with stuff after that through my physical senses. And actually, that's fine for 99.9% of what I do. Our human senses are extremely good at picking up what's in our environment. We hear things, we see things, we smell things. We can act adaptively to protect our bodies and so forth. But all this parapsychological data says, wait a minute, we may be focused here 99.99% of the time, but don't say our ultimate nature is limited to here. It goes way beyond that in some sense. And most of the time it's fine that we don't know that, you know. If if I'm trying to think of what to say to you now, I don't want to telepathically pick up what somebody in China is thinking as they cram for a test somewhere. That'll be distracting. But... The parapsychological stuff gives us direct tastes sometimes of, oh, I'm more than that. Mm-hmm. Let's take remote viewing, for instance. Mm-hmm. When they were first doing the remote viewing research at SRI, there were enough parapsychologists in the San Francisco Bay Area that for a year or two I held a meeting at my house once a month for, of these active parapsychologists to talk about what they were doing. And very early on we had uh, Russ Targ and Hal Putoff come and talk about their remote viewing. And it was still pretty brand new stuff. And they described these impressive cases and, well, yeah, but that seems awfully good and stuff doesn't generally work that well. And then they said, and now we'll show you how it's done. And they said, okay... How is going to go away, and in half an hour, we're going to ask each one of you to close your eyes and try to get pictures of where he is. Okay, I didn't expect anything to come of it, okay. We had no idea where Hal went, right? A half-hour drive of my home, that narrows it down to a million places. No, no point trying to guess at it. Mm-hmm. Time came, Russell was there, he asked us to look for pictures and so forth i didn't have much mental imagery my mind was busy thinking as it usually is but finally i had one mental image that was pretty good and i thought for a few seconds i was looking in some factory and it was a factory that had a lot of white machines in it that had wheels or parts that went around in big circles and it was very brightly lit and then the image was gone it didn't make any sense to me so I, I wrote down a little description of it and so forth. Hal eventually came back, and we all got in some cars, and he took us to where he'd been. He'd been in front of a laundromat. At first, 
it didn't i was looking at the street it didn't look anything like that and then i turned and looked in the laundromat window and all these white washers and dryers are spinning around under mm -hmm. the bright bright fluorescent lights and oh that happened to me wow <laughs> experiences like that carry a lot of weight yeah. so this is one of the important things about parapsychological phenomena they can take some spiritual ideas and make them something that's an actual experience not just an abstract sort of ideas mm -hmm. out of the body experiences as another example I had read many accounts of people who had out of the body experiences where they find themselves floating near the ceiling say see their body down below and the like and the experience might only last uh, half a minute or something like that. But what was especially interesting was the after effect. The after effect for almost all these people was they'd say something like, I do not believe I'm going to survive physical death. I know I'm going to survive physical death. I've been alive and conscious outside my physical body might not affect us that strongly hearing about somebody else's experience but it really brought it home to these people there's something in me that might survive death they could be wrong but this is a bit of evidence saying yeah that's stacking the odds a little in that favor mm-hmm well I think it was Einstein, I could be wrong, uh, who said that the most important question anyone can ask is, is the universe friendly? <laughs> I hope so. I don't know. It doesn't seem very friendly sometimes when we have wildfires and the like, but I hope so. Yes, you're suffering uh, right now in the Bay Area. I understand the air quality is really terrible oh. there. Oh, yeah. You know, they've, they've told us, try not to go outside for the next few days. You know, it's really awful. My gosh. I, I know that takes us away from our planned topic, but I couldn't help think about it because there you are, right? So close to those mm -hmm. biggest yeah. fires ever in California. But, of course, we, the voters, have rationally already... Uh, made bond efforts for major reservoirs and the like to increase our water supply and all that because we think ahead mm. right so you have to distinguish fantasy from fact when it comes to everything in life including parapsychology and including einstein also i i used to have some great einstein quotes which i found people made up there's yeah. a whole industry of making up ideas and attributing them to einstein and william james as well there are yes. <laughs> william james quotes that i've never been able to <laughs> validate <laughs> but with regard to the data of parapsychology, it does suggest to me telepathy, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, all suggest that uh, time and space and consciousness are uh, not what we conventionally assume them to be. There's they're sort of, you know, the standard Western creed, I think you call it in, in one of your books, that, uh, you know, that we are nothing more than the molecules and cells that we're made out of. Exactly. And that creed, incidentally, is an exercise that I make people quite unhappy with when I have them do as an exercise, because it's, it's 
taking straightforward ideas about everything is only material and putting it in a form like it's a religious creed and having people recite it together and it's a real bummer and they realize that I believe a lot of this stuff simply because it's in the air around us and uh, you know my life there's no inherent meaning in the universe like the rest of the universe my life has no inherent meaning I'm not going to quote it more because I don't want to give the viewers a bummer either but it's I if for someone who would like to find out something about beliefs you have and may not know you have but which are affecting you I'll recommend that particular chapter in the the end of materialism book or what's the name of the paperback Jeffrey uh, the secret science of the soul there you go <laughs> <laughs> but it does seem to me and I think you point this out there is something comforting about that belief it's like I don't have any illusions yeah. I'm facing reality, bleak as it may be. About 95% of the people who've done this exercise in my workshops find it very depressing, mm -hmm. but they're glad they're wiser. They know they've got these built-in resistances. About 5% say, yeah, no worry about whether I'm moral or immoral or whether I'm going to hell or not. I'm just a bunch of chemicals sloshing around. You can't blame me for anything. Uh, my parents or my genes or my chemistry or something like that. That doesn't make for deep value systems. Mm -hmm. Th then there are people who might take the parapsychological data and say, yes, this data shows us that there is uh, what some philosophers call a supersensible world, a you know world beyond normal consciousness. But then they add, we don't know if it's a friendly supersensible world or it might be a hostile world. There could be harmful forces out there, entities that we would rather not even know about. Right. I'd rather not know about them. Mm -hmm. I will admit this is one of my biases, okay? I find ordinary human beings, you and me and our friends and everybody, we can be quite nasty enough without bringing in any unusual kind of help that way. And I know this is a bias on my part, and I'm not inclined to test it. You know, like, for instance, can you hex somebody to kill them? I'm not about to initiate any experiments along that. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll have to tell you a funny story instead that goes back to talking about the power of beliefs. An anthropologist I know was in South America and he was talking to a group of shamans about hexing people to death. And they asked him, well, how, how do you Westerners explain that sort of thing? And he explained the, the psychosomatic theory, you know. It gets you so stressed out that it stresses your body badly and you die. Mm -hmm. And then he couldn't understand why all these shaman, shamans practically laid on the floor laughing. And they finally explained, you Westerners, how can you be so dumb? If somebody knows they've been hexed, they get a shaman to fight the curse <laughs> off. So it has to be totally unknown for it to work. <laughs> Belief systems. <laughs> and and I do know of at least one report in the anthropological literature of a person who was hexed by a shaman, and that person was in a different country, didn't know they had been hexed, and they died. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the negative potential of all of this. In fact, interestingly, Charlie, I, I interviewed a scholar of religion, Jeffrey Cripple, who is also oh, a yeah. member, 
Yeah. Member of the Parapsychological Association. And he points out, you know, when we think of religion, when we think of God, oftentimes religions exist for the purpose of protecting the congregation from the awesome power and, and fear of God. I mean, if, if you read the Bible, he points out, if you see God, you die. Mm-hmm. That, even in our most comforting religions, God is 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 a horrible, awesome, so so powerful. It's like a nuclear reactor. It's oh yes. So I know there have been times in my life when I've wanted to have some kind of mystical experience that will make everything all right, sure. and I sort of say a prayer to that, and I add, incidentally, God, could you sort of manifest gradually in a non-threatening <laughs> form so you don't scare the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. I know there's that that possibility, and I I recognize my bias against it. Mm-hmm. There are areas in life in which I can be intellectually pretty open, and other areas in which I know I can't handle it. Precognition, for instance, I know the evidence that sometimes we can get information from the future is overwhelmingly positive. That's one of the five things we can be sure of actually exists, but it makes absolutely no sense to me. And Mm -hmm. I try not to think about it. Mm -hmm. Should I try not to think about it in the future? (laughs) As long as I have some sense of humor about it, I'm not too worried. So, you know, there may be psychic entities that can be nasty. I hope not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I could say the same thing about human beings. I wish that no human beings were nasty, but we have some pretty horrible examples. So I know a little bit about helping people to be a little bit gooder. Mm -hmm. And I think as a transpersonal psychologist, when we can train people to have the kind of mystical experiences that connect them with the universe, I think we can definitely improve the state of the world that way. But I'm not not into pushing at the other side of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, also, people manipulate the hell out of other people by scaring them about demons and evil spirits and so forth. So that gets pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. Well, it it does. Let me just bounce off of you um, before we end. One other statement that uh, Jeffrey Cripple recently made when, when I spoke with him. He said he's sick of people saying we shouldn't use the term paranormal, that it's really normal. He said, no, it's not normal. It's, he said, if you look, and he's looking at extreme examples like his mm-hmm. uh, collaboration with uh, Whitley Strieber, a UFO contactee. Uh, he, he says, when you look at these extreme examples of the paranormal, there, there, there's nothing normal about them at all. Well, this is all a matter of how you define normal, okay? And and words that should just be descriptive often take on emotional values. Mm-hmm. So the term remote viewing, for instance, was deliberately used instead of saying we're doing clairvoyance experiments at SRI because clairvoyance is weird woo-woo stuff that shouldn't happen and doesn't happen and drives you crazy. But remote viewing, that sounds like an engineering application, and SRI does engineering applications. And 
parapsychologists approximately every five to ten years get, get all worked up over we got to change the name of the field because parapsychology has got the wrong associations and nobody ever comes up with anything better you know some people talk about anomalies or anomalistic phenomena uh, but the people who are frightened by it and try to suppress parapsychology they still know what you're talking about yeah. there's a lot of irrational opposition to parapsychological research as you know and it's likely to remain no matter what name we use. But I think we need lots and lots of it. I mean, let's face it, parapsychological research is such a tiny amount of scientific research, it's almost as if it doesn't exist. It's only because we've been doing it for 100 years that we've got enough of a database to be able to say things like telepathy happened for sure. Mm -hmm. But in terms of transpersonal psychology and identifying as something bigger than just what's in your brain, we really need to know how much of that is real and how much isn't if you feel at one with all the entities in the universe would you do better on a clairvoyance test or is that feeling something that might be valuable in and of itself but it doesn't mean you actually connect in something uh, interesting questions very important questions to me yes. I, I hope we in the coming decades see some answers yes yeah. well Charlie this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really delighted that we have this time together and that I can share it with our viewers. Thank you so much for being with me. Well, thank you for holding these conversations, Jeff. You you bring the stuff out. Well, I look forward to uh, having more with you in the future. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.